Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we are going to resume our discussion of Gerda Lerner's book, The Creation of Patriarchy. Written in 1986, this book analyzes ancient texts in great detail, chronicling the development of patriarchal systems from humans' prehistoric past through the time of the ancient Greeks. My reading partner for this book is Sherry Crawford, and she's joining me again today for the second half. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Amy. Thanks for being here again. Last time we talked about um, the agricultural revolution, and then we dug into some of humanity's earliest written records, like the Code of Hammurabi, and we ended up by talking about the ancient goddesses, Inanna, or Ishtar, and Asherah. And so that's where we're going to pick back up today. So I'm going to start with just a quick overview of Hebrew civilization and the Bible as a historical document. I just want to say at the beginning, we're going to be focusing on some really hard parts of the Bible Mm -hmm. and maybe illuminating some new information. The purpose of this is not to undermine anyone's very personal or sacred relationship with these stories. I just want to be sensitive to that. At the same time, I want to say that the facts that Lerner presents about biblical authorship and when where this text comes from are not just her opinion, right? They're consistent right. across several sources. This isn't just Lerner's interpretation. There's a historical record that you can fact check really easily. So let's start with just a brief summary from the creation of patriarchy. So in terms of timeline, remember that written language began in Sumer in about 3000 BCE. Abraham, the patriarch in the Bible, the actual, the guy, Abraham, was thought to have lived (laughs) in around 2000 BCE. And then Moses was supposed to have lived around 1300 BCE. So the stories of the Bible, the really, really old ones, the creation, the flood, and then now to Abraham and Isaac, Moses rescuing the Hebrews from enslavement in Egypt. So those stories were not authored by one person. They were authored by many people over the course of about 400 years between the 10th and 5th centuries BCE. So prior to that, these stories existed only as oral tradition, passed down from generation to generation. So these stories were passed down orally, not for decades, not for centuries, but for thousands of years before anybody ever wrote them down. That's important to know as we approach these stories. So scholars believe that there are three main threads of authorship in the book that Christians call the Old Testament. So these multiple authors, again, they lived hundreds of years apart, and separately they wrote down the ancient oral traditions that their people had been passing down for thousands of years. Basically, all of these threads, all of these different accounts of these oral traditions were first fused into one book in about 450 BCE. That's about the time of Pythagoras in Greece or Confucius in China. That's when that what we think of as the Old Testament was first written down in one volume. So that is just a, a brief introduction about where this text comes from. Yeah, this is important information as we approach this text. To yeah. our knowledge, all the authors from the beginning to end were male. And these Mm -hmm. stories were gathered and embellished and changed over many centuries by different groups of men, absorbing Mm -hmm. attitudes and practices from those men and from surrounding cultures. In fact, Lerner points out that the Code of Hammurabi and the Middle Assyrian laws had a big impact on Hebrew law. 
She says, quote, the biblical narratives of Genesis composed between 1200 and 500 BCE reflect a social reality similar to that described in the Babylonian sales contract in 1700 BCE, end quote. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it only makes sense, right? That you're going to absorb the practices of the people around you, right? Absolutely. But then what? But then once it's written down and then it's like, oh, this is the scripture, this is the word of God, it get the whole thing gets stamped yeah. under the seal of approval of God. And then I, I, just from a historian's standpoint, that's problematic. <laughs> but anyway, for the rest of the discussion, we chose what we thought were the most important points from Lerner's analysis of some of the books of the Bible, the early chapters of the Bible. Lerner suggests that when we approach any religion's creation narrative, and all humans have them, we can ask three questions to help us understand the values of that culture. She says, by articulating how things were in the beginning, people make a basic statement about their relationship with nature and about their perception of the source of power in the universe. She suggests that the questions to ask are, one, who creates life? Two, who brings evil into the world? And three, who mediates between humans and the supernatural? Or to whom do the gods speak? So if we remember the, the last episode that we did together, Sherry, we, we talked about the goddesses and who created life in those origin stories. A mother goddess, either herself creating gods or in partnership with a father god. We didn't talk about who brought evil into the world last time, but we briefly mentioned that gods spoke to both men and women through priests and priestesses prophets and prophetesses, male and female oracles in mm -hmm. some of these religious traditions. Lerner suggests that we keep those questions in mind as we look at this text and what it says about the author's beliefs and attitudes. So what does this culture believe about who creates life? Obviously, the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the account follows where God says, let there be light. And he separates water from land. He creates animals. He creates Adam. And he tells Adam to name all the creatures. So this is a male father God. There's one they that refers to God. And that's Elohim. And in Hebrew, technically, that means plural gods. But the pronoun is always masculine. And the overwhelming conception of this person is male, right? It's always he. There's no mother God creating alone or creating with the help of a male. So to the question, um, who creates life? Genesis answers Yahweh and the God-like male, Adam, who he created. The second question, who brought evil into the world? We've talked in, in the previous episodes about the goddesses and how they're represented by snakes and trees. Now let's read, and I actually just want to read a chunk of the verses um, as they appear in the Bible, just so we have the exact words in mind. Sherry, would you mind reading this part? It's Genesis 3. Yes, I get to read the scriptures. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, 
she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat and the lord god called unto adam and said unto him where art thou and he said i heard thy voice in the garden and i was afraid because i was naked and i hid myself and he said who told thee that thou wast naked hast thou eaten of the tree whereof i commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat and the man said the woman whom thou gavest to be with me she gave me of the tree and i did eat and the lord god said unto the woman what is this thou hast done and the woman said the serpent beguiled me and i did eat and the lord god said unto the serpent because thou hast done this thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life and i will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel unto the woman he said i will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee and unto adam he said because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which i commanded thee saying thou shalt not eat of it cursed is the ground for thy sake and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee and thou shalt eat the herb of the field in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground for out of it wast thou taken for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return and adam called his wife's name eve because she was the mother of all living okay i mean if we ask those questions who brings evil into the world the woman woman does and who tempts the woman? It's a snake who, in the context, in, historically and religiously, that was a symbol of feminine power. Mm-hmm. And so she's recast as a tempting figure. And then she tempts Eve with the promise of wisdom, which is really interesting, too, because the snake was a symbol of the feminine and of wisdom. Mm -hmm. But then it's cast in a negative way instead. So the woman and then the woman takes fruit from a tree, which is a symbol of Asherah, also the goddess of wisdom. And that act brings about the fall of humankind and then the subjugation of all wives to their husbands and all women to men. I'm going to read two quotes from Lerner. She says, quote, the consequences of Adam and Eve's transgression fall with uneven weight upon the woman. The consequence of sexual knowledge is to sever female sexuality from procreation. God puts enmity between the snake and the woman. In the historical context of the times of the writing of Genesis, the snake was clearly associated with the fertility goddess and and symbolically represented her. Thus, by God's command, the free and open sexuality of the fertility goddess was to be forbidden to fallen woman. The way her sexuality was to find expression was in motherhood. Her sexuality was so defined as to serve her motherly function, and it was limited by two conditions. She was to be subordinate to her husband, and she would bring forth her children in pain. The other quote that I wanted to share of Lerner's interpretation is is this one. Quote, the divine breath creates, but human naming gives meaning and order, and God gives the power of that kind of naming to Adam. God granted that power specifically to the human male only. After the creation of Eve, Adam names her as he had named the animals. The naming here not only is a symbolic act 
of creativity, but it defines woman in a very special way as a natural part of man, flesh of his flesh, in a relationship which is a peculiar inversion of the only human relationship for which such a statement can be made, namely the relationship of mother to child. The man here defines himself as the mother of the woman. Through the miracle of divine creativity, a human being was created out of his body, the way the human mother brings forth life out of her body. So this just shows how completely that traditional female mother goddess myth that actually most of the world's religions share where there's at least a female component to creation has been completely erased from this story, right? It's a man that does every single part of the creation. There is a woman there and she doesn't do any of it. So really quickly, I just want to mention, so her third question, who mediates between humans and the supernatural or to whom do the gods speak? Lerner says, the Old Testament male priesthood represented a radical break with millennia of tradition and with the practices of neighboring peoples. This new order under the all-powerful God proclaimed to Hebrews and to all those who took the Bible as their moral and religious guide that women cannot speak to God. So only men are entrusted with leadership in the religious hierarchy, and only men preside over their wives and over their families and over their congregations and the, and the women have to obey the men. So the answer is to whom does God speak? He speaks to men. So that was the creation and the fall of Adam and Eve. So Sherry, let's talk about women's value being defined by motherhood in the Bible. Okay. So these two main points are number one, yibum, a form of Leverite marriage found in Judaism as specified in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, the brother of a man who died without children is permitted and encouraged to marry the widow. The log could be seen as benevolent, making sure she's not cast out into the streets and alone, but why not create a society where the widow has better options than either marrying hmm. her brother-in-law or being destitute? Also, Lerner points out that a woman has to get married again in order to fulfill her purpose as a woman. She quotes L.M. Epstein's explanation saying, the family had paid for her and the family owned her. Family property was not allowed to lie fallow. So this woman bought and paid for and capable of wifehood and childbearing could not be allowed to be without a husband. Women were really seen as breeders used for their uterine capacity, just used. The way it's written here just feels like women had no intelligence, no opinion, no feeling. They were not allowed to. So mm -hmm. Yibam is the first part. The second is, if you think your only worth is infertility, then barrenness is worth, worse than death. The main biblical story that unifies three major religions begins when the childless, aging Sarai urges Abram to have intercourse with her maidservant, Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing Go in, I pray thee, unto my handmaid. It may be that I shall be builded up through her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Here, Abraham has sex with Sarah's maid, Hagar, who conceives and gives birth to Ishmael. Then Sarah becomes so jealous, she makes Abraham kick Hagar and Ishmael out of their family into the desert. Hagar, of course, believes Ishmael is the heir of the Abrahamic covenant, and Islam traces their lineage through him. 
But of course, then Abraham and Sarah have a baby in their old age named Isaac and Judaism and then Christianity trace their lineage and claim that they are the covenant people through him. Lerner makes some really interesting points about this passage. There are several underlying assumptions implicit in these accounts. A slave woman, so Hagar, Mm -hmm. owes sexual services to her mistress's husband. And the offspring of such intercourse counts as though it were the offspring of the mistress. All women owe sexual services to the men in whose household they live and are obliged in exchange for protection to produce offspring. The dependent status of the free wife is implicit in Sarai's pathetic statement, quote, it may be that I shall be builded up through her. The barren woman is considered faulty and worthless. Only the act of bearing children will redeem her. So Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, before offering Jacob her handmaiden, Rachel exclaims, give me children or else I die. When at last God hearkened to her and opened her womb, she said, God hath taken away my reproach. No clearer statement of the reification of women and the instrumental use of wives can be made. Barrenness in a wife, which was interpreted to be failure to bear sons, was a disgrace to her and cause for divorce. Abraham's wife, Sarah, and then Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel, all three of those women offer slave women to their husbands rather than be childless. So now uh, you get to talk about women's social standing in the time of the Bible. So I'm going to talk about a couple of scenes in the Bible that demonstrate women's status in the culture at the time that it was written. Just a content warning that these scenes are violent and do depict rape. So there are two passages that Lerner highlights, and we're just going to talk about one. It's in Genesis 19, verses 1 through 8. This is the part where, if you remember Sodom and Gomorrah and the man Lot and his family. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to jump in. This is in the town of Sodom. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. Which, of course, means to have intercourse with them. Mm-hmm. So uh, verse 6 says, And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold now, I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, Hmm. and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. Hmm. So Lerner makes the comment, Yahweh, to whom the crimes of Sodom are so abhorrent that he destroys the city and all its inhabitants, nevertheless saves Lot, Lot's right to dispose of his daughters, even so as to offer them to be raped, is taken for granted. It does not need to be explained. 
Hence, we can assume it is reflective of a historical social condition. Another similar episode happens in Judges chapter 19, when a different city, it's in a different city, a different group, again, a, a group of rapists surrounds a house and demands a man's male house guest who is a Levite. Mm-hmm. And in this story, the host again offers his virgin daughters to the rapists. But instead, the Levite takes his own woman, it's unclear whether she's his wife or his concubine, and he throws her outside. Mm. Um, She is gang raped all night. And when she collapses at the front door the next day, the Levite demands that she gets up. She can't stand up. So he puts her on his donkey and she apparently dies on the way home. Mm. You can read it in the Bible in Judges 19. So this man, the Levite, is furious that the rapists killed his woman. So more violence ensues, which results in the murders of many innocent people afterwards. But the whole story is understood to illustrate the people's depravity and the need for a king because the people were so terrible. But when you look at what the story says about the women are regarded, um, well, Lerner says... Quote, this was a crime because of the spoiling of the Levite's honor and property. Mm. The Levite's attitude toward his concubine, who in the Masoretic text is alternatively referred to as his wife, Mm -hmm. shows not only his willingness to surrender her to the gang rape, but in his sleeping peacefully during the night of her ordeal. Uh. Nowhere in the text is there a word of censure toward him for his action or toward the host who offers up his virgin daughter to save this guest's life and honor. It's just awful. I just don't, it's just awful. There's just, there are no words for how horrifying these scenes are. Right. But I just have to throw in that that mentality, if you consider that these are foundational texts and, and ask the question, like, are there remnants of this still in our culture? Absolutely. I just... Absolutely. Right. I mean, it's in the text. It's in the Bible. It does influence the way people think about women. So that's all I got for that. So now I get to talk about the covenant. You do. (laughs) Throughout the entire Hebrew Bible, there's patriarchal language. God names Isaac the son of Abraham. Generations of the sons of Noah are sons of their fathers. This is not just patrilineal. The women are so totally erased that it reads as if procreation is completely a male act. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in the Hebrew Bible, it's patriarchal language throughout. And now let's talk about this covenant. (laughs) The covenant between Yahweh and Abraham completely excludes women. Genesis 17, 9 through 10 says, This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of a covenant betwixt me and you. This covenant can only be made with people who have a penis. Women or people with no penises are not able to covenant with the God of the Bible. I think it's okay to laugh at that, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was funny, (laughs) but it's true. It's funny because it was true. So here, Lerner points out something that I'd never noticed before. She says, we must take note of the fact that Yahweh makes the covenant with Abraham alone, not including Sarah, and that in so doing, he gives divine sanction to the leadership of the patriarch over his family and tribe. Abraham incorporates the tribe and the family in a manner which Roman law at a much later period will institutionalize as paterfamilias. 
Sarah is mentioned in the covenant passage only as the bearer of Abraham's seed. The covenant relationship is only with males. First with Abraham, then explicitly with Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac, who's referred to only as Abraham's son. The community of the covenant is divinely defined as a male community, as can be seen by the selection of the symbol chosen as the token of the covenant. The image of the breasts of the fertility goddess nurturing the earth and the fields has been completely replaced by the image of the circumcised penis, signifying the covenant contract between mortal men and God. So there we go, the penis covenant. Yeah, well, let's leave it at that for the Bible. Okay, so we're going to end quickly with Lerner's last chapters where she talks about ancient Greece. And historically, this there's an overlap between ancient Greece and the time of the Bible. It's about 1200 BCE to the year 600 CE. So Lerner points out many, many interesting things, and we've selected three. First, she says, as in Mesopotamia, male gods take over power from the forces of chaos identified with the fertility goddesses. So that happens in Greece as well. The second thing that she points out is she summarizes the status of women in Athens in the following way. She says, Women in Athens were excluded from participation in the political life of the city and were legally lifelong minors under the guardianship of a male. The common practice of men in their 30s marrying girls in their teens reinforced male dominance in marriage. The the main function of wives was to produce male heirs and to supervise their husbands' households. Many female children were exposed at birth and left to die, Mm. with the decision over their fate always made by the father. Premarital and marital chastity were strictly enforced on women. But their husbands were free to enjoy sexual gratification from lower class women, heteri, which was a type of courtesan or prostitute, Mm -hmm. and slaves, and from young men. Respectable women spent most of their life indoors, while men of their class spent most of their time in public places. The third thing Lerner talks about is the legacy of famous and respected philosophers like Aristotle. There are many Greek philosophers that you can look up and look up look up what they thought about women and just be horrified and infuriated if you would like to. Mm-hmm. Um, Aristotle is one of them. And he's important because as the tutor of Alexander the Great, he was really kind of a vector that really spread the Greek regard for women all over a huge section of the world. Aristotle was a scientist. In line with just general Greek philosophical thought, Aristotle considers the material world of lower importance than spirit. So in Aristotle's explanation of the origin of human life, there are four causes of life. Three of the four causes are attributed to the male's contribution, the semen. Mm-hmm. And it was only the fourth and the lowest, which was the material, being the woman's contribution. And Aristotle thought of that as, I think he called it katamania. That was like the female secretion. So he thought that those two secretions combined to make a baby, but that the the male contributed the spirit and the female contributed just one fourth of the total and it was just the lower matter. So of course it follows that any birth defects are because of the female contribution because that's the matter of the baby. And the most common birth defect is that the fetus is female. Here is a quote from Aristotle. 
Quote, for just as the young of mutilated parents are sometimes born mutilated and sometimes not, so also the young born of a female are sometimes female and sometimes male instead. For the female is, as it were, a mutilated male. Here's another one. Mm -hmm. So Aristotle also said, quote, human society is divided into two sexes. The male, rational, strong, endowed with the capacity for for procreation, equipped with soul and fit to rule. The female, passionate and unable to control her appetites, weak, providing only low matter for the process of procreation, devoid of soul, and designed to be ruled. Mm. So to wrap it up, (laughs) I'm just going to share a summary from the conclusion of the book that brings together these two really, really important threads of the Hebrew tradition in the Bible that will become, of course, the Christian tradition as well, and then the Greek tradition as well. So I'm going to read this quote from Lerner. She says, By the time men began symbolically to order the universe and the relationship of man to God in major explanatory systems, the subordination of women had become so completely accepted that it appeared natural, both to men and women. As a result of this historic development, the major metaphors and symbols of Western civilization incorporated the assumption of female subordination and inferiority. With the Bible's fallen Eve and Aristotle's woman as mutilated male, we see the emergence of two symbolic constructs which assert and assume the existence of two kinds of human beings, the male and the female, different in their essence, their function, and their potential. This metaphoric construct, the inferior and not quite completed female, became embedded in every major explanatory system. So it's really worth getting this book, even if you check it out from a library. It is chock full of Mm mind-blowing insights. And we still didn't even scratch the surface, don't you think, Sherry? I mean... Yeah, there's so much more. (laughs) (laughs) I think the soundbite to leave us with is Gerda Lerner's most famous quote. She says, The system of patriarchy is a historic construct. It has a beginning. It will have an end. Mm -hmm. 